The Speaker sells his soul, but has his gavel. The RNC weighs having a Trump-backed chairperson. And New Hampshire Dems get bumped from leading the calendar. It's their party, and they'll cry if they want to on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president. Add Ike to you, and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 398 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. First of all, apologies for my disappearing act the past few weeks. I had a cold from hell in December, sick as a dog, and it was obvious that I couldn't put together a show since I no longer had a voice, as you can hear. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 398 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. It was not fun, but all is well. Anyway, we're only a week or so into the new year, and already there are major happenings in Senate races that are up in 2024. On Thursday, Nebraska GOP Governor Jim Pillen appointed his predecessor, Pete Ricketts, to fill the vacancy left by the resignation of Senator Ben Sass, who's now president of the University of Florida. Ricketts will serve until a November 2024 special election. But this is a good time to focus on the California Senate race. Dianne Feinstein, the oldest member of the Senate at 89 and the most senior Democrat, is presumed a likely retiree, given all the discussion there's been about her apparent cognitive decline. But Democrats are not waiting for an announcement. Katie Porter, representing the 47th CD, a coastal district south of Los Angeles, got in the race on Tuesday. I'm Katie Porter. Change can be electrifying and exhilarating, but change can also be disruptive and disorienting, like the constant assault on our democracy and the dangerous imbalance in our economy. Too often, this disruption is coming from within. They used to call the United States Senate the world's greatest deliberative body. Yeah, well, if that were ever true to begin with, that has changed too. The threat from so-called leaders like Mitch McConnell has too often made the United States Senate the place where rights get revoked, special interests get rewarded, and our democracy gets rigged. As Californians, we've proven we won't just sit by and let these things happen. You always do your part, and I will continue to do mine. Especially in times like these, California needs a warrior in Washington. And that's exactly why I'm announcing my candidacy for the United States Senate in 2024. Porter, in her third term, is best known for her expertise in banking and financial issues. She won re-election last year by just over three percentage points after her district was made more Republican. She's a favorite among the progressive left. The next day, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who was much further to the left than Porter, reportedly told friends in the Black Caucus that she was also running, but has yet to announce that publicly. She was first elected from Oakland in a special 1998 election following the resignation of her former boss, Ron Dellums. 
Governor Gavin Newsom has said in the past that if Feinstein left office before her term was up, he would appoint a black woman to the post, and many saw that as a strong possibility it would be Lee. For her part, Lee said she's holding back on an announcement out of respect to Feinstein. Also set to be raising money and staff for a Senate bid is Adam Schiff, who is nationally known for leading the two House impeachments against Donald Trump, as well as his participation on the January 6th committee. Actually, Schiff made national headlines from the moment he was first elected, in 2000, when he unseated GOP incumbent Jim Rogan, a leader in the Republican effort to impeach President Clinton. The election, at the time the most expensive House race in history, was seen as a referendum on the Clinton impeachment. Schiff said this on Fox 11 Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, look, I am getting a lot of encouragement to run for the Senate uh, from people in California and, and colleagues here in Congress. Uh, if Senator Feinstein uh, retires, uh, then I will give it very serious consideration. Uh, you know, at this point, um, I think we're waiting to see what Senator Feinstein has to say about her plans. Uh, but, uh, but yes, it is something I'm giving serious consideration to. Schiff's visibility as an anti-Trump warrior is one reason why Speaker Kevin McCarthy has vowed to remove him from the House Intelligence Committee. In addition, it's retribution for when the Democratic House removed Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from committees because they were attending white supremacist events. Clearly, Adam Schiff is more of an irritant than George Santos, at least to Kevin McCarthy. Either way, Schiff may decide that there's no significant role for him to play in a Republican-controlled House. Another possible Senate candidate is Ro Khanna, a favorite of Bernie Sanders supporters who's been a longtime critic of Feinstein. We have a long way to go in this race. The primary is not for another year and a half. But one thing to note, unlike the other possible candidates mentioned, only Katie Porter's House seat would be in jeopardy of being won by the Republicans. On my way to sunny California On my way to spend another sunny day Water, water, water. water. Sunshine brightly down on the Sunshine down on the It wasn't quick and it certainly wasn't pretty. But Kevin McCarthy, the California Republican who served as House Minority Leader during the past four years, is, once and for all, the new Speaker of the House. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. It took 15 ballots to elect McCarthy. The last time a vote for Speaker went past a single ballot was 100 years ago, in 1923, when Massachusetts' Frederick Gillette won on the ninth ballot. The last time a vote lasted longer than McCarthy's was in 1859. Then it took 44 ballots before William Pennington, a freshman Republican from New Jersey, went over the top. Of course, back then, there was no internet, no cable, no preening before the cameras. There was a lot of that this time. With C-SPAN carrying every vote live, Americans got to see democracy at its best, or its worst, depending on your point of view. 
McCarthy, who thought he was going to be Speaker in 2015 when right-wing Republicans forced John Boehner out of the Speakership, only to realize that the Conservatives didn't want him either, has said from the beginning that he had the votes. But he also expected a fight and was ready for a fight. We put forth to the American public a commitment to America. There's times we're going to have to argue with our own members if they're looking at for only positions for themselves, not for the country. For the last two months, we worked together as a whole conference to develop rules that empower all members. But we're not empowering certain members over others. Last night, I was presented the only way to have 218 votes if I provided certain members with certain positions, certain gavels, to take over the church committee, to have certain budgets. And they even came to the position where one, Matt Gates said, I don't care if we go to plurality and we elect Hakeem Jeffries and it hurts the new frontline members not to get reelected. Well, that's not about America, and I will always fight to put the American people first, not a few individuals that want something for themselves. So we may have a battle on the floor, but the battle is for the conference and the country, and that's fine with me. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't see how a few people, maybe it's five, maybe it's 20, sit because they want a gavel that they can't earn by the conference of themselves. That would be interesting to me. That's not what the constituents voted them for. With 222 House Republicans in the 118th Congress, and with 218 votes needed if every member was present and voting, McCarthy could only afford to lose four votes. The question from the outset was, could he keep the opposition to four? No one, not even the most rabid not-Kevin Republican, thought that the opponent's total could reach 19 or 20, which it did for the first 11 rounds of balloting, plus one who voted present in the 11th round. As the vote went on, the opposition took turns throwing their votes around, first to Andy Biggs of Arizona, then Jim Jordan of Ohio, then Byron Donalds of Florida, and then Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma. None of them were serious candidates for Speaker. They were vehicles for the anyone-but-Kevin crowd. Matt Gates of Florida, as only Matt Gates would do, voted for Donald Trump, reminding everyone that a House Speaker did not necessarily have to be a member of the House. For their part, all 212 Democrats present, there was one vacancy, voted for their choice for Speaker, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. We watched tempers rise and anger and frustration building. It's also interesting to see not only who's in the gang of 20 or 21, but who's not. One person sticking with McCarthy from the start was Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Here she is on CNN criticizing not only the gang, but specifically Lauren Boebert, a longtime ally who refused to vote for McCarthy. I think the American people, no matter how you vote, are sick and tired of drama, and this is nothing but drama. We're, we're on multiple days now with multiple candidates from this group, so I'm not sure how Lauren Boebert on one hand can demand so much out of Kevin McCarthy, but then demand nothing out of someone else and be willing to vote for them to be speaker. That's not serious. Um, I don't think that's leadership, and I really see it as more obstruction than progress. If you're like me, you spent the better part of Tuesday through Friday of last week watching every House vote and not knowing how it would end. Also, if you're like me, you had no idea what would come next. Did McCarthy sell his soul to become speaker? Will he have much power in the 118th Congress? And what happens on key issues, such as the debt ceiling and possible default? 
For that, I turn once again to someone plugged into the new GOP leadership on Capitol Hill, our old friend Vin Weber, longtime Republican strategist, former Minnesota congressman, and ally of Kevin McCarthy. Vin, I just want you to know that America is counting on you to make sense of everything that's been going on. <laughs> Ken, I don't want to disappoint you or America, but I'll do, so I'll do my best. Okay, that, that's all I can ask for. Democrats and much of the media have dismissed the actions on the House floor as a, as a soap opera that was a humiliation for Congress uh, and an embarrassment for Republicans and a strike against democracy, uh, an end result that left McCarthy pretty much impotent for all that he gave away to get the job. How much of that do you agree with, if, if any of it? Listen, I didn't like the spectacle of what happened last week. I didn't like the leverage that the 20 20- fringe members of the Republican conference try to utilize. I think, I think that that was a negative. There's no question about that. But I also think that the opposition and much of the commentariat has overstated the problem. Let me, let's talk about Kevin McCarthy as speaker for a second, and I'm going to do so by talking about his predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, who you and I talked about the last time I was, I was on the program with you. We agree she was one of the greatest speakers of all time, okay? Nobody said Nancy Pelosi was a great speaker because she had the rules rigged in her favor. She was a great speaker because she's a person of intellect and principle and drive and, when necessary, a little ruthlessness. So the point I'm trying to make simply is, yes, the rules matter. But at the end of the day, the key question is, what kind of a person is Kevin McCarthy going to be? If he's smart and strong and principled, I think, and I think he is, he can still be a strong speaker. Yeah, the rules matter, but they matter less than the qualities of the person in the chair. You know, you talk about the 20 or so Republicans who, who you know, stood to, you know, stuck to their guns and voted against McCarthy. I think for the first 11 ballots they were together, what was their argument against him? The, the argument against him never really gelled with those 20 people. You, could, you couldn't nail, I was in contact with folks trying to be helpful from the sidelines, and I could never find out. A lot of it, half of those people anyway, it really came down to personal dislike. And why they personally disliked him, I mean, who, who knows, some slight on the floor of the Congress years ago that we may never, have, may, may never know about. But about half of it came down to personal stuff. And, and the others, you know, people uh, like Chip Roy, who became sort of famous over the course of that week, he just has his own interpretation of what his brand of conservatism is all about, populist conservatism, if you will. And he felt like he had to stand up against, quote, the establishment. But there's not a unifying factor. That's another reason that I, I reject the most extreme negativism about all this. You know, let, let me let, let me do a, a bit of history that, that you'll remember and that I was involved in on a, on a split that really mattered, unfortunately, for my party. And that was in 1991 when I was in Congress and President George H.W. Bush got together with the Democrats and proposed a tax increase, known historically as the Read My Lips tax increase, because he had said famously in the con- his convention speech, I'm going to tell them, read my lips, no new taxes. Right, the 88 okay. convention. The 88 convention. Okay, so I was part of the group with Newt Gingrich and many others that said we cannot, as Republicans, who got elected on a tax-cutting platform, support a tax increase. The majority or the, or the, the establishment of our own party, including the leadership, Bob Michael, the leader, said 
we have to support a tax increase because we're worried about the size of the debt. That was a real issue, a big division, a fundamental philosophical division, and it did divide the party, and it may have cost Bush the presidency, which I'm sorry about. It wasn't personal. It was ideological. I'm contrasting that to what we saw last week, where I can find personal things, people that didn't like McCarthy. I don't really see a big ideological division within the Republican Party. Now, you know, when I was, I mean, there was a scene where it looked like that Alabama's Mike Rogers was, was going to get into it with Matt Gates, yeah, and he was yeah. pulled away, and, you know, tempers were short. And, for example, we're talking about 20 members who were holding up what some 200 Republicans wanted. Have you heard from any of the disgruntled members who either were furious with people like Gates or, or you know, as I said, felt McCarthy gave up the store? Um. I, I've heard from a good number of them that were furious with people like Gates and many of the others. They feel like they were abused in the process since they represented 90% of the caucus. But they made a decision to follow McCarthy's path toward getting elected speaker, and that was, except in the notable case with Mike Rogers, to sort of hunker down, bite your lip, and just grind through this process without making it worse. And it eventually worked. Congressman Rogers is a respected guy. He's a good member of Congress. He just temporarily lost it on the floor. But most of the other, there are a lot of members who feel just as angry as he did. They simply believe we're going to stick with the strategy. We're going to stick with Kevin McCarthy. We're not going to lose our tempers. We're not going to give the 20 dissident members any additional reason to uh, foment rebellion. You, you referred to the uh, uh, revolt against the Bush tax increase in 90, 90 and 91. Um, there was also, when you were in Congress, you know, there, was, uh, there were plots against, well, actually, this was after you were in Congress, but there were plots against Newt Gingrich and, and his leadership. Did you see any comparison of those times to what we witnessed last week? Well, it, the, the, the best comparison is simply the numbers. I mean, after the 1998 election, which is so disappointing for Republicans, in the, the, there was a number of Republicans who said they simply would not vote for Gingrich for Speaker, and he couldn't get the 218. Well, that's a very direct parallel to the leverage that the anti-McCarthy people had. You have to, you have to get to 218. If, if, in this case, five members decided not to vote for Kevin McCarthy, he couldn't have gotten to 218, and that's the leverage. There was a difference, however, and the difference was most of the members who were anti-Gingrich back in the, in the 90s were moderate Republicans, and there was a con- it was conceivable that they could unite with Democrats to elect a different speaker. I never thought that that was possible with this group, that the most conservative members of the Republican conference would be able to strike any kind of a deal with the Democrats. I know there was speculation from day to day about something like that happening, but it was never real. So in in terms of just the basic numbers that drove the process, yeah, it was very much similar to what happened with Gingrich. In terms of the dynamics within the conference, it it was quite different. And of course, there were so-called moderate Republicans back then that really, really don't really exist today. That's exactly right. You know, some some of those people are very much, if they haven't called themselves Democrats today, they are certainly against the party of Donald Trump. Well, they were those those people were more comfortable doing deals with 
the Democrats than this group of, uh, of Freedom Caucus Republicans ever would be. With a Democratic caucus, by the way, today that is more left-wing than the Democrats were back in the 1990s. You know, um, we, I guess we have a sense of what McCarthy agreed to, you know, separate appropriation bills, uh, you know, rather than a single omnibus spending bill. Um, he's agreed to cap uh, discretionary spending, stay out of the primary contest, you know, defund IRS agents. But there's also a change in the rule known as the motion to vacate, which, of course, lowers the numbers of members needed from five to one. Can you can you explain that? The reason I'm asking that is, I mean, basically, that's kind of what ended the speakership of John Boehner. And I'm just wondering if that's something that could threaten McCarthy's job. It, it's conceivable. I don't particularly like that change. Of course, the advocates of it say that we lived with that rule in the House of Representatives for many, many decades. And it was Nancy Pelosi that wanted to get rid of it because she didn't want to have to live under that threat. Um, it, it, in, in essence, it empowers one member to cause a lot of trouble. But one member can't really remove Kevin McCarthy from the speakership unless he has he or she has significant numbers of allies. So I don't think it was a good change. Uh, I I'm sorry it happened. I'm not sure that it poses a lethal threat to the McCarthy speakership, but, you know, we'll find out. Some of these things just you have to find out in, the, in practice what they actually do. Let me, but let me go back to another piece of it. There, there, some of these changes were really good. I, the, 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 the attempts to change procedures so that we deal with individual appropriations bills as opposed to huge omnibus bills ought to be welcomed by everybody, regardless of partisanship, regardless of their ideological color. That's the way the process should work. We vote on individual appropriations bills and and end the process that has become so prevalent now of just doing everything in one big bill. And it's not fair. Right, didn't it used to be separate bills? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, we, we, you know, it, the, the process began eroding a long time ago, but... When I was there, we had 13 separate appropriations bills. And I remember we didn't always do all of them every year. Sometimes we failed and we had to combine a couple of those bills in one. But whenever we did all 13 of them separately, it was a cause for celebration on both sides of the aisle. Because regardless of what the substance of those bills was, the process worked the way that it should. And, you know, when people talk about no one has read this bill. I always laugh a little bit. Members of Congress don't always read all the bills anyway, because there's just not enough time to read them all. But when you have a bill of that size, $1.7 trillion, it's, it is a legitimate point to say simply, really, we're going to find out after it passes a lot of things that are in this bill. And that's not a good way of doing it. I mean, we've got the committee structure of the Congress set up precisely so that at least a significant number of members do know everything that's in the bill. But when you pass, put it all in one big bill, yeah, it, it, you lose a lot of accountability, and it's a bad process, regardless of which party you're in, regardless of what outcome you ultimately want. Have you talked to McCarthy or his staff since the election? Yes. Uh, is he relieved? Is he embarrassed? Is he angry? Is he all of no, the above? They, they, no, 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 no. He's positive. He is positive, and he's upbeat. Uh, I, I think that Kevin McCarthy handled himself well through this very difficult ordeal. If, if you notice, he did not retreat from the floor of the House to go back into the cloakroom and start meeting privately with people. He stayed right there, right in the middle of the caucus. He was, he was visible. He was, he was always there. People could go talk to him anytime they wanted to. And I think that he feels as if his 
approach and his strategy worked well. And you saw his acceptance speech, the, the line that gets uh, most uh, comment is his line. He says, one thing you've learned about me is I never give up. That may be a pretty basic element of strategy, Ken, but I think that says an awful lot about Kevin McCarthy and, and how he succeeded last week, and I think he feels good about that. I don't think he's ignorant of the challenges he faces. I mean, he's been in leadership for a long time. He knows the problems that they face. He's been through this in the past. He knows they're going to face real difficulties when the funding bills come up and they have to, and we will face the prospect of shutting down the government, which we have had in the past. But I think he feels good about the way it worked out, and I think he's positive and optimistic going forward. In one of his early comments after he became Speaker, uh, McCarthy thanked Donald Trump for his backing. Uh, let me play some of that tape. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. He would call me and he would call others. And uh, he really was, I was just talking to him tonight, um, helping get those final votes. And what he's really saying, really, for the party and the country, that we have to come together. We have to focus on the economy. We've got to focus, make our borders secure. We've got to do so much work to do, and he was a great influence to make that all happen. So thank you, President Trump. I actually thought that Trump was finally becoming marginalized by the House Republicans, but I guess not. Well, I had the same reaction you did. I thought that, that the, the fact that some of his closest allies were unmoved by his initial plea for Kevin McCarthy indicated that he was he was being diminished somewhat as a figure. I, I'm... I guess that we can't say that because I think Kevin McCarthy gave him credit, as did others, for his last-minute interventions with the, the members. I'm still not 100% sure how much impact he actually had, but, you know, this is politics. Appearances are everything, and he certainly had the appearance of having had a decisive impact at the end. You know, the one Republican who everyone couldn't help but talk about last week was a guy named George Santos. I mean, of course— you know, McCarthy refused to say a bad word about him because he needed his vote, and I understand that. But now that Santos has been sworn in, what's his future going to look like? Is it just well, an ethics committee? Well, he, he, I think, yeah, he's, he's, he certainly faces an ethics committee uh, investigation, probably around his fundraising practices. You know, it's not clear. The thing that got, has gotten the most public attention, as you're well aware, is the fact that he lied about his resume in his campaign. About everything, All right. About, about his ethnicity, about his religion, but about his sexual preference, about everything. But His mom, his di- mom, his mom right. died in 2001 and in 2016. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's not clear that, that lying in a campaign violates the ethics of the House of Representatives. I mean, the, the, the voters did vote for him, and they can vote him out in two years, which they almost certainly would if he runs for re-election. But there are some things that are the proper uh, uh, province of the ethics committee, such as his fundraising practices. I, I think that that will that there. It's not going to be long before he is referred to the ethics committee, partially because members uh, on on both sides of the aisle, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, will want to do something to get the issue of George Santos off of their plate, not not to have to be constantly asking should he resign, should we expel him from the Congress. The answer to that is we have referred it to the Ethics Committee, and that's why I think that's going to happen. And I think they'll take action against him, by the way. I was trying to figure out what's, what's next for the House, and 
Do you think these 20 or so hard right members are going to agree to vote to raise the debt ceiling? Or, you know, I mean, are we potentially heading for a fiscal crisis? What do you think is going to happen with that? Well, that's the greatest crisis. That, that's the greatest threat we face. And then there's two levels of threat. The, 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 the smaller but significant one is that we'll get, we will repeatedly be faced with the prospect of shutting down the government over a funding bill. And I think that we're going to face that. That's not the greatest threat. The greatest threat is the one you just cited, that we will, de- that we will not be able to raise the debt ceiling and risk putting the country in default and risk a financial crisis that goes along with that. McCarthy people are keenly aware of that. The president is keenly aware of that. So, you know, I'm, I'm, this is partially uh, with fingers crossed and partially with hands folded in prayer. I think we're going to avoid default, but it, that is the big threat. Let me ask you one final question about, you know, McCarthy asked about uh, investigations and subpoena power. And, of course, you know, that probably means the Biden family and the FBI and the Justice Department. He said he's going to block some Democrats like Adam Schiff from some committees, you know, as, as revenge for what happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene. But at the same time, and going back to the Donald Trump thing, there's a special counsel that, you know, Jack Smith, who subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani and, and the, the investigation into Trump's activities is getting more and more intense. That's why I was wondering why it was interesting to me why McCarthy went out of his way to thank Donald Trump, considering the fact that people expect, but who knows what's going to happen, but people expect that somehow the boom is going to come down on Donald Trump. Well, it looks to me like the boom is going to come down on Donald Trump, but it's also clear that Kevin McCarthy believes that as we face these big issue challenges going forward, the ones we just talked about on shutting down the government and defaulting on the debt and things like that, one headache he doesn't need is the former president of the United States on the other side of the issue. At least that's my interpretation of why he's taken the position he has toward Trump. Trump can make things a lot worse if he goes out there and crusades against raising the debt limit, just to give an example. So I think that Kevin is hoping that his uh, attitude toward the former president means the former president at least will not be a problem and maybe an ally in facing what genuinely are bigger issues down the road. And, of course, you don't, I mean, you don't for a second think some of the bigger, bigger issues involves Hunter Biden, do you? No, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know where that... No, I don't think so. I, I don't know where that's all going. I, you know, at the last time we talked, we made the point that the party was before the election. The minority, the, the party opposing the president has the option of doing a couple things. They, they can block spending bills, which we've just talked about, or they can investigate. And I think that Kevin McCarthy early on gave a green light to the, his most fractious membership say, go ahead, do what you want to do on, on investigations. But when it comes time to deal with the spending issues, those are deadly serious issues, and I'm going to need your help. Whether he gets it or not, I don't know. But I think that he's given them sort of free reign on these investigations, which I think are going to be excessive in all likelihood. There are some things that are, that are worthwhile. I mean, I think that the response to COVID, for instance, deserves oversight and review. Uh, particularly, you know, uh, the impact of closing down schools and things like that to prevent us from making mistakes in the future, if indeed we made them in the past. But a lot of it is just political, and people will see it as political, I think, 
and and that will be the break on the investigations is when we when the Republicans start seeing this is not resonating with the country. Vin Weber is a longtime Republican strategist, a former GOP congressman from Minnesota, and is considered a close ally of Kevin McCarthy, who was elected as the nation's 55th Speaker of the House late Friday night. Vin, thank you so much, as always. Ken, always great to be with you, and uh, be well in the new year, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thanks so much, Vin. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. Republicans may have finally come up with a Speaker of the House, but there may be more party drama on the horizon. The Republican National Committee will be meeting on January 27th to decide on whether Ronna Romney McDaniel, whom President-elect Donald Trump picked as RNC chair in December of 2016, should win a fourth term. As you may recall, she's the daughter of Ronna Romney, who ran against Michigan Democratic Senator Carl Levin in 1996, and Scott Romney, Mitt's older brother, who appeared on The Political Junkie back in 2019 talking about his late father, George Romney, and the brainwashing controversy that helped end his presidential campaign. In her six years as chair, Ronna Romney has been the ultimate Trump loyalist. She supported efforts to censure Republicans who spoke out against the January 6th insurrection. She backed the former president's efforts to overturn the election. She made sure that many RNC events were held at Trump properties. And until he announced his bid for another term, the committee had been paying Trump's legal bills. But the Republicans under McDaniel have not fared too well. In 2018, they lost the House. In 2020, they lost the White House and the Senate. In 2022, when everyone was talking about a red wave, the Democrats actually picked up a seat in the Senate, extending their majority. And while they lost the House, Democrats did far better than anyone thought, keeping their losses to single digits. McDaniel now has at least two challengers aiming for her job. Michael Steele knows a thing or two about RNC elections. A former lieutenant governor of Maryland, Steele was elected to head up the RNC in 2009, becoming the party's first African-American chair. The following year, Republicans picked up a net of six seats in the Senate, six for governor, and a whopping 63 in the House. Michael Steele is here to set up the upcoming RNC election. Michael, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Hey, man. It's good to be back with you, my friend. Well, it's great having you and great to hear your voice again. And here's my question. You know, now that the Republicans have elected a speaker... Clearly, the attention has now turned to the RNC. Is it fair to argue that a race for RNC chair is more important now that, now that there's a Democrat in the White House? Well, not really. In, in one sense, you, you've got a, a Speaker of the House. I, I did not have a Speaker of the House when I was chairman. Um, so, you know, we were in the minority in the House. We were in the minority in the Senate. Uh, and so it was a very different dynamic where the RNC chairman played a, a very important political role uh, in the overall leadership of the party. 
keeping in mind the Senate and the House leadership, minority leadership, took care of the policy stuff. Um, my, my job became very important in terms of accentuating, organizing, prepping, planning, executing a political uh, agenda uh, uh, and party activities that would reinforce any policy uh, initiatives coming out of the House or Senate. In addition to building off uh, of or building up or rebuilding the party after massive losses in 2006 and 2008, uh, the presidential race. Ron, uh, Rana's uh, dynamics are, are, are very different. She's got a Speaker of the House now. Um, the Senate is close, uh, and, and therefore uh, th- they're going to drive a lot more of the narrative than you, than you see coming out of the House, I mean, out of the RNC. What she has to do is largely what I described as my job at the time I came in, but her challenge is uh, there are factions now that have emerged inside the RNC that seems to want to push back against her leadership, uh, particularly given that she's not won any races as national chair. Rana has had the, the, the good fortune of not winning a lot of elections raising a lot of money, but uh, shifting a lot of it to, to Donald Trump, not necessarily the state party organizations uh, and candidates, um, except for in limited capacities, uh, and uh, losing seats along the way and keeping a job for what would be an unprecedented fourth term. Let me, then let me ask you these two questions. One, given the fact that Republicans have had three disappointing elections in a row under McDaniel, uh, some are, I mean, some are blamed Donald Trump in 22, but some are blaming her as well. One, is that fair? And two, you know, with many Republicans thought to be considering a bid for the White House in 2024, would having someone who's clearly identified with one candidate be a problem? Uh, yes, uh, that would be a problem. Uh, no doubt about that. You know, the critical, the critical uh, feature for that is uh, trying to um, figure out who that candidate is going to be and whether or not there's someone in the RNC who's going to allow that uh, primary process to unfold without interference, without preference. And so, yeah, that's going to be a legitimate concern. So she's got to make that case. Um, she's having a problem doing that, although now, to her credit, she went out and lined up 100 uh, supporters, endorsements inside the, out of the 168 members of the RNC. Right. That was back in November, though. That was back in November, right? Correct? But I was about to say, I guess, back in November, but I've not heard nor seen a lot of people peeling off of her. There have not been a lot of public pronouncements, or, or any for that matter, if people say, well, I was standing with Ron and now I'm not supporting her. So she's apparently holding that coalition together, uh, and there have been some who've come out to challenge her uh, for the job. But, you know, how many of the 68 members do they have, and are they able to convince some of her, her supporters to peel off will remain to be seen. But, you know, look, she, she's got to go out and justify why she should hold that job after not winning any cycles. And if, if anyone's fair in this process, despite what they may think of me and my, and my absolute 
disdain for Donald Trump and Trumpism, uh, both inside and outside of the Republican Party. You cannot, you cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that I, I, I laid the, you know, I set the, me- the measure. Uh, I set the bar. And she hasn't met that bar. In your term as chair, you, you, you swept all these races, as you said, governor, senator, uh, House representative, state legislative seats. She did not do that. So anyway, so her main challenger is somebody by the name of Harmeet Dillon. What do you know about her and what's her argument for running? She came onto the committee after I had left. She uh, is someone who has uh, appeal apparently with a, a significant number, or a good number of the members. Uh, she's been very effective in sort of building her together, her co- pulling together her coalition. Don't know if it's enough to overtake uh, Rana. She she has ethnic appeal as someone who comes from an ethnic background. Right, she's in she's Indian American, correct? Indian American, and so that that for a party that's always trying to figure out how you know to open that door could create some some synergy and some opportunities. But I don't know what she's run inside the party. Uh, I don't know um, her ability to to actually uh, lay out a vision for how you govern when you are in the minority and, you know, and how you lead rather when you're in the minority because the party doesn't govern, Um, how you lead when you're in the minority, how you build up resources, how you expand the base of the party and how you address the, the, the big elephant in the room, which is America's looking a lot less like her colleagues and a lot more like her and me. Um, and how do you begin to lean into that into a way in which you're, you're, you're not alienating people? The Republican Party has never learned it's not enough to say, oh, we freed the slaves or, oh, we supported the civil rights legislation. Um, you've got to back that up. You've got to be present in communities because the dynamics and realities have changed in the last 60, 70, 100 years. <laughs> And, and, but, and then how do you justify that when you've got Republicans out here who are, uh, are not, um, who are going after uh, critical race theory, which is a legitimate theory at an uber academic level, not being taught in elementary schools, and yet they're using it and racializing it in a way that alienates a lot of black voters? not to mention um, all of the other things that we've seen with the embrace of white nationalism, the embrace of uh, language and rhetoric that is antithetical to uh, a lot of communities of color. So, you know, you, you got, it's not enough to, to, to go out and, and, and say, oh, guess what? We doubled our number of blacks in the house from two to four. Well, whoopee. <laughs> what is, what's their connection to the black community? And, and how effective will they be in, in building, helping you build that bridge, or how effective will you let them be in building that bridge? So there's a lot, a lot at stake here. I'm just wondering if Harmeet Dillon is talking about racial uh, reconciliation, because first of all, she, she seems to be appealing to the more MAGA elements in the party. Uh, Tucker Carlson made it clear that he wants to change. Not that Tucker Carlson runs things, but, I mean, he made it clear that he wants to change from McDaniel. And, uh, and you know, there seems to be a lot of, you know, as I said, 
MAGA-type, Trump-like people. Besides, Dylan was, um, she was the attorney representing Trump in lawsuits, right, during related to the 2020 election. So right. it's, it's not that she's running to Ronald Romney's left. She seems to be running uh, front to her. To her right, and you, you raise a very good point. So let's, let's deal with it in order. One, no one gives a rat patootie what Tucker Carlson thinks because he's never run anything except his mouth, and he's wrong with, with whatever comes out of his mouth. But that, that's just my opinion. Um, two, um, the fact that she is being touted by the likes of a Tucker Carlson um, who's in bed with, with uh, white nationalism, who's in bed uh, with authoritarians like Orban, um, says to me that this is the further magnification of the party and a further entrenchment of that magnification of the party. I guess you well put it, running to the right Arana on, on, the, on what? Not on conservative ideas. It's not like you know, Rana is anti-Second Amendment, and she's pro-Second. You know what I'm saying? Where you can see these stark policy uh, and philosophical differences. That has not been in play for the GOP since 2016. We have not had a. We've not laid out a, philo- a coherent philosophical justification for conservatism, other than anti-wokeness. Sort of uh, the the approach towards. Uh, communities that they don't like, whether it's LGBTQ, et cetera. Um, so there's not been a philosophical uh, uh, standard and foundation that's been articulated that then animates the policies that may come from the legislative side of things, and we haven't seen much of that. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is magnification on steroids, um, and it speaks to, especially if uh, she wins, it speaks to how much of that infection has incurred inside the GOP. And now the question becomes, what happens from that? Where do we go from there? If you oust Arana McDaniels, um, more and more uh, count of state and uh, state chairmen and national committee men and women are Trump types or acolytes. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it sets up a very uh, interesting 2024. And while it may not be Trump who's leading that charge, because I still don't think Trump will actually uh, becomes the nominee, because I think in the end it, 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 he doesn't want to do the work. And, and I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, this is this announcement that he made last year was more about raising money for himself than anything else. So then the question becomes, does this party block and tackle other Republicans out of position to elevate Iran DeSantis, to do for DeSantis what they did for Trump? If, if the party takes a, hey, our primary system is, a, is, a, is open to everyone who wants to get in and allows, you know, a Liz Cheney or Larry Hogan to get into that race as much as a Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, then that will say a great deal about Um, the party trying to rebalance and reorient itself to allow for the various views that exist within it to emerge in the party to to go through that primary process and the party to decide which direction it wants to go. But I don't think that's going to happen. Mike Lindell, you know, MyPillow CEO, is also running. And I saw that he's been endorsed by Carrie Lake. I'm sure that helps a lot. But does anybody take Mike Lindell's candidacy for RNC chair seriously? No, they don't. No, the members don't. 
uh, you know, as much as he's all, you know, he's, he's Trump's guy, they don't, because Mike Lindell would be the worst thing that could happen to the RNC besides the other worst things that have happened to the RNC. Um, so it, it, it just it, it just is not feasible. You know, as long as I have you, do you have any thoughts about the Republican battle f- for House Speaker? Well, it was a crap show, uh, to put it in, in respectable terms. It, it was also a reflection of the deep-rooted uh, schisms and uh, fissures within the GOP. It was the, the manifestation of one man's singular ambition uh, at the expense of his political soul, weakening and diminishing the, the power of the Speaker's office to gain that office and then expects to govern. And while we only saw one defection uh, with respect to the rules, what you will see going forward, and it's already beginning to manifest itself on some of the actions that uh, some of the committees are starting to take in pushing bo- uh, forward abortion legislation that will go absolutely nowhere after ha- having lost on the question of abortion by 53% <laughs> spread between uh, the Republican Party and the rest of the country on abortion. So that fights like that are not going to be helpful to Kevin McCarthy's leadership. Uh, fights like, like that, uh, among others, which have long-term serious consequences for the health, the economic health of the country around debt, uh, debt questions and uh, things like that, um, are, are going to be problematic. And when you have basically said, I'll say and do anything you want me to do to get, to get the job, what do you think happens once you have it and folks don't want you to say and do certain things? You won't. It doesn't matter what 200 members of the, of the caucus want. What matters are the, the six or seven um, who have absolute control because now all it takes is one member to vacate the chair, to call vacating the chair, and two, um, you don't have a supermajority. Boehner had a 43-seat majority. He has a four-seat majority. That's all he can afford to lose on any vote is four seats, four votes. You know, I, th- I thought it was interesting, that picture of a smiling Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene after the vote was over. Um, these are interesting times. Well, they are, and it tells you how much how much Kevin was willing to give up because Marjorie Taylor Greene was uh, an opponent. She did not like Kevin and was initially not supporting his, his uh, candidacy. What is, what is so weird and so opportunistic for her, she figured out, I can box out of position Lauren Boebert and others by cozying up to Kevin. And that's exactly what happened. And so then you got Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who were, you know, butt buddies uh, sitting in the seats of the Congress, heckling uh, from the chief seats, right? right? Matt Gates too, right. Yeah, Matt Gates now, now at opposite ends of the spectrum. But here's the, here's the question. Are they really? Because they're still part of the same cabal. They're still part of the same um, insurrectionist mindset inside the, the body of the House. So it's going to be very interesting, Ken, to watch these guys try to make an attempt at governing, especially when governing is not their intent. 
Michael Steele is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Before that, he served as Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. Michael, it was great having you on The Political Junkie once again. Absolutely, my friend. You take care, and it's great to be with you anytime. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. There's nothing for me here, so I will disappear. If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear New Hampshire? Well, if you're a political junkie, you think of the state's primary, which, since 1952, has been the nation's first in helping pick the presidential nominees of both parties. New Hampshire's Day in the Sun was upended a bit in 1972 when Iowa decided to hold the nation's first presidential caucuses ahead of New Hampshire, and candidates began flocking there as well. This shotgun marriage has pretty much worked for the past half century, despite the familiar complaints. The states are too white. Their populations aren't representative of the nation as a whole. That hasn't affected Republican thinking, but Democrats, led by President Biden, who did terribly in both Iowa and New Hampshire in 2020, want a change in the system. South Carolina has more African-American voters, Nevada has more Hispanics, and a stronger influence from labor. These are all major constituencies of the Democratic Party. And many in the party, not the least of which President Biden, want to reward these and other states with the opportunity to leapfrog over Iowa and New Hampshire to begin the process. Needless to say, this hasn't gone too well with Iowa or New Hampshire Democrats. Lou D'Alessandro is a longtime Democratic member of the New Hampshire State Senate. In 2019, he served as national chair of the Council of State Governments. For those true political junkies with long memories, he began his career as a Republican, first winning election to the State House in 1972 and running for governor twice in the GOP primaries of 1980 and 1982. But he tops off his resume as a guest on The Political Junkie. Lou D'Alessandro, it's great to hear your voice again. Well, thank you very much, Ken. It's a pleasure to hear yours and to, <clears throat> and to welcome your thoughts uh, and, and your, uh, re- your recall of, of the New Hampshire primary and, and New Hampshire, per se, New Hampshire politics. Well, your memories, too, because you've witnessed some you know, really memorable New Hampshire primaries in your career. Um, do you have a favorite memory? Well, I think my, my favorite memory was when Cuomo almost got in. <laughs> and the plane. This is, this is 1992, right? Yeah, right. And the plane was warming up <laughs> on the runway, and then no Cuomo. And uh, we had a, you know, a draft Cuomo movement here uh, in, in New Hampshire, and it, it just uh, flopped. <laughs> but weren't you, weren't you waiting for the plane to take him from Albany to, to right. Manchester, and you were going to rush the, you know, his, uh, his declaration of candidacy to the Secretary of State's office, right? Is that what happened? Uh, yep, oh, what almost happened. That's, that's what almost happened. He was going to be rushed, and we were going to rush him to Concord and get the thing, the draft Cuomo's committee going, but that never happened. <laughs> you know, when it, but 
but a great story. That's 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 for sure. A great story. It is. You know, I think of these great stories in New Hampshire, and you think of, here I go again. You know, Henry Cabot Lodge winning on a right. write-in primary, and Eugene McCarthy coming close to Lyndon Johnson, and Jimmy Carter. You know, going from Jimmy sure. Who and all these things. But what I love about the Mario Cuomo story is that it never happened, but it's a memorable moment. You're absolutely right. A very, a very, very memorable moment. It, you talk about Jimmy Carter standing on the corner of Bridge and Elm Street with a sign, I'm Jimmy Carter. How about that one? And Didi Shaheen, who's now our senior U.S. senator, ended up running his campaign uh, and uh, won the, 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 he moved on from the New Hampshire primary to the presidency. That's an amazing story. Here's a little-known governor of the state of Georgia who becomes the president of the United States, and if it weren't for the New Hampshire primary, it never would have happened. And who are the two? I, I can't believe I'm forgetting the other woman. But in 1980, when Gene Shaheen was working for President Carter, and the other woman, and I just remember her name worth repeating because she had the same name twice, uh, was working for Ted Kennedy. Who was that? Working for oh, Dudley Dudley. Dudley Dudley. Right. Dudley Dudley. It's worth repeating. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I served on the executive council with Dudley Dudley. And uh, she, <laughs> you know, She's still around. She's still around New Hampshire as as we speak. You know, what, what I always liked about New Hampshire is that you didn't have to be a multimillionaire candidate to compete. And, you know, you, we talked about Jimmy Who, and we talked about how John McCain upended the Republican establishment in 2000. Retail politics really mattered back then. Have those have those days vanished? Well, the... the uh the, the snippet, the 30-second TV spot, has really taken precedence. You can still do it. Uh, the town meeting is still a very important part of the, of the process here in New Hampshire. But indeed, television has taken over. I've never, ever, ever seen anything like what happened in this last senatorial election here in New Hampshire, and I guess in the elections around the country. But the amount of money spent on television is enormous. And the frequency and the cable channels, it's, it's not only the networks, but now it's the cable channels that, that offer the uh, political ads. So I think it has changed a bit. And that's why New Hampshire is so important, because in New Hampshire, retail politics is still part of the game. We're small enough so that you could go from one end of the state to the other. You could drive. Uh, where in, in other states, you're going to fly. And you can have a town meeting here and people show up. That's another very important situation. Now, when they talk about the, the, the demographics, sure, sure, we're, we're a predominantly white state, but that's changing too. Our cities are becoming uh, more uh, more integrated, and more more people of color are moving to to New, to New Hampshire, and more uh, immigrants are coming to New Hampshire. So it's changing, but indeed. You just can't beat the retail part of politics, and the retail politics is what New Hampshire's all about, New Hampshire's famous for. And indeed, you could still do it with retail politics in New Hampshire. Well, you know, I could understand the argument to strip Iowa of the, you know, its first-in-the-nation caucuses, because it botched both contests, right, in 2020 and 2016. Right, yeah, exactly. Right, and left unclear who actually won until days later. So right. maybe I could make the—I I think it's easy to make the case why Iowa and its caucus system should be removed from betting first. But why did they include New Hampshire as well? 
Well, you know, that's, it's very difficult for, for me to figure that one out. I, I think we, the, the, your original statement that Biden did do well here and he didn't do well in, in Iowa, they have may, may have something to do with it. And the fact that he thinks South Carolina was the key issue in him, him winning the nomination. And it was, it was. Yeah, sure, in winning the, the presidency. Uh, but, but indeed, uh, that's no reason to pull it, pull it from New Hampshire. Our state law indicates we have to be the first in the nation primary. We have to be two weeks ahead of everybody else. So that's state law, and that will—that's not going to change. Uh, I, I think the fact that that this president has made a, another suggestion—it's up to the Democratic National Committee to make the final decision, and that vote will come sometime in January. Uh, but. You know, he didn't do well here, and I was a big supporter of, of, of President Biden's. I was one of the first uh, elected officials to come out for him. I worked very hard for him. We did telephone calls. We did door-to-door. We did a lot of work for him, but I, I, it just didn't, it didn't come to fruition here, and there are many reasons for that, but taking away the primary is not, it's not a good situation. It's not a good idea in my from my perspective. Well, considering the fact that he, he's run for president three times, right? 1987, 2008, and 2020. And actually, the first two times, he was out of the race be, even before the New Hampshire primary. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, as you say, in 2020, he finished fifth. Fifth. But, um, but I know that because of those three runs for president, he's had, he had a lot of friends in New Hampshire. I guess the question is, does he still have friends in New Hampshire? Well, I, I, I think he still has friends, obviously, because the, the friendship runs deep, and that's, uh, life is all about relationships. But, but I think the fact that he turned on New Hampshire, you know, it's, it's, it's very discouraging to me that he would, do, he would do that in light of the fact that we worked very hard for him, and we still are, are committed to him and committed to his policies. And, and again, we have a... Uh, all federal delegation here are Democrats, and they've been very supportive of the president. So, I, I, I think it's a little disheartening to the to Joe Joe's citizen, whose whose vote is very important and who who's uh, committed to to supporting the president. So, I, I think it hurt, and uh, you heard comments from all of our federal delegation, and certainly from key members of our state delegation, who were really kind of. Uh, Disgruntled by, by Maggie Hassan didn't seem too happy at all. No, no, no. Maggie wasn't happy. Jeannie Sheen wasn't happy. And we and we don't know if Dudley Dudley is happy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Dudley. Well, it's Dudley Dudley. It's still worth repeating. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me. I mean, what options does New Hampshire have? I mean, it could, it could, theoretically, it could hold its primary. Any, let's just say the DNC decides that New Hampshire is no longer first, and New Hampshire could hold its primary anyway, you know, because of state law, right? Yes, it will. It will still hold its primary. The question will be: Will the delegates be seated? And I think that's the key issue. And the, the Democratic National Committee will make that decision if they change the dates uh, and New Hampshire runs its primary. They could. They could push the delegates aside and not consider them you know, viable, and as a result, not legitimate based on their primary process. Now, the Republicans, on the other hand, have agreed that New Hampshire's primary will be first, and uh, they're, in, they're in sync with it. So now you have a real chasm between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party with uh, with uh, relationship to the New Hampshire primary. 
but I, it's just it's it's just bad news for for, for New Hampshire. And I, what I really think is the problem is will candidates come? And I don't think that they will come if if the uh, if the votes don't count, if the delegates don't get seated. What? Why? Why? Why waste your time coming to New Hampshire for a non for a non issue? And I think that's. Uh, that's something that the people of New Hampshire will be very upset with. Well, that's what happened in 2008 in, with Florida and Michigan. They decided to go first. The DNC said, no, you can't do that. They said, we're doing it anyway. And some candidates showed up in those states and others didn't. And the DNC, of course, you know, stripped a lot of their delegates away from them, but they still went ahead with it. Yeah. Well, I think we'll go ahead with it. No, there's no question we're going to go ahead with it. It's the law. The Secretary of State will fulfill his commitment, and the law, the law is the law. Now, what the DNC does is something else. My perception is, my perception is the punishment will be stripping the delegates, but that's, who knows? In the long run, who knows what will happen? The fact is, of course, should Biden run again in 2024, and assuming if he runs, he runs pretty much unopposed, right. the Democratic calendar may not mean that much, but of course, yeah. if he decides not to run, and the Democrats have a wide-open battle, it could matter a great deal, right? Yeah, no question. Both scenarios are, are, are correct. If he, if he decides to run, it's no contest. But if he doesn't, it's open season. And there'll be, there'll be a number of people. How many people in his cabinet will be running for president? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that, that Including be, his vice president. Yeah. Yes, including his vice president. Well, that's no another question. thing. That's another thing. You think of a large black electorate in South Carolina that could very well help Kamala Harris, right? I mean, theoretically, yeah. right? Sure, absolutely. And if Michigan yeah. moves up, that could help not only Gretchen Whitmer if she decides to run, but I should note that Pete Buttigieg has moved from Indiana to Michigan. To Michigan, yes. So I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe if maybe if they get New Hampshire back to number one, he'll move to New Hampshire. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Anything's possible in this crazy world we live in. But, uh, of course, another thing, um, you say the Republicans are starting first, but if, remember when Tom Harkin of Iowa ran for president in 1992 and made the Iowa caucuses pointless? Yes. If, Chris, if Governor Chris Sununu runs for president in 2024, well, the Republican New Hampshire primary will be pretty much irrelevant, assuming you know, people, other people stay out, but who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, Chris is very popular. And you know that he's been uh, been given a lot of national press lately, and he's traveling around the country and speaking uh, at, at almost every event. He's, he, as Ray Burton says, he's now at every opening of an envelope. So <laughs> it makes it makes a big difference. Another thing, though, if Biden succeeds in replacing New Hampshire, I mean, forget about whether he runs or not. There is a risk that state Republicans will blame your party for what happened and give them ammunition, right, for the for the 2024, you know, local elections, right? Oh, sure, of course. There, there, there'll be plenty of blame. And you have to negate that by saying, well, listen, we'll do the best we can for our candidates and we'll, we'll move forward. It, it, uh, you'll, have a, you'll always have a blame game. That's part and parcel of the political process, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, and also I'm just thinking as we're talking, I mean, if New Hampshire will jump, no matter what date, they say for South Carolina, New Hampshire, as you say, will simply jump in front of it. Right. We could have primaries beginning in December of 2023. You, you're <laughs> right? right. We we could. It's a, it's it's going to be an amazing year. No no question about it. What's your bottom line prediction of what happens? 
my bottom line prediction is that the, the that the Democratic National Committee will will follow Biden's lead, and it will make South Carolina first. Uh, I just think that's the way it is. You can't go against the sitting president. On the other hand, New Hampshire will be infuriated and uh, will still run the primary, and then the decision will be made on the delegates and whether or not the delegates are, are seated. That will be another battle. So I can see I can see a battle shaping up, and uh, it's going to be <laughs> long and arduous, and I'll tell you that. It's probably one that the Democrats don't especially need. Exactly. Don't need and, and, and really don't want. But it may happen. It may happen. Lou D'Alessandro is a longtime member of the New Hampshire State Senate and a leading figure in Democratic politics there. Lou, not only was it great having you on the program, we got to talk about Dudley Dudley, and nobody does it anymore. Right, that's for sure. And her picture, her painting, hangs over the entrance to the Executive Council chamber. And as you say, Dudley Dudley, it's worth repeating. I, I think that's a great line, <laughs> and, and one that uh, will forever be in the history of New Hampshire politics. Well, do, uh, Lou D'Alessandro is worth repeating, too. It's great having you on the show. Lou, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And keep smiling. You and too. Have a great, great American day. Thank you. Don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. Find someone who's turning. And you will come around. Blind man running through the light of the night with an answer in his hand. Come on down to the river of sight and you can really Through the window in the lane Can you hear the sirens moan? White cane lying in a gutter in the lane If you're walking home alone Don't let it bring you down It's only castles burning Find someone who's turning And you will come around That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, complaints, or corp drops, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon.